Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this season, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every single goddamn page in a trio of adventure modules for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes RPG, starting with Adventure MT1, All This and World War II. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. All This and World War II was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Today we're discussing the inside front cover, I think, of All This and World War II. Yesterday uh, was pretty gonzo, big introduction to uh, Season 5 and to the weirdness of Marvel Comics, especially old ones. Today, we're looking underneath the weirdness of Marvel at the RPG's structural elements that underlie all that strangeness, and as is fairly obvious from the adventure flowchart on this page, that underlying structure is generously a railroad. What we've got on this page uh, against a gray background, simple caption on top says adventure flowchart, and then we have all these nodes, these little white bubbles with numbers in them. They're numbered from 1 to 23. They're connected by these little uh, black arrows, and those arrows lead with Calvinist inexorability to the word epilogue, which ends the adventure in the only way and the only place that it can end. Much more on that, obviously, later. The, The dumbest thing on this page, the thing I want to talk about is quite how linear this structure is. Now, a little peek behind the curtain, I've made a deal with myself, because last episode went a little bit long recording-wise. I've only got so much time to record in this hotel. If I can knock out like four episodes in the next hour, I'm going to reward myself by ordering fish and chips from room service, which I want a lot. So there's some potentially nuanced stuff that I'm about to talk about, and I'm definitely not going to give it that nuance. Because while I feel unqualified to evaluate the exact importance of role-playing game design in the grand scheme of things, I feel certain at this moment that it is less important than fish and chips. So here's the thing about the structure of this story and of other uh, similar story constructions, like choose-your-own-adventure books are a great example. You only have so much space, right? Whatever your medium, whether it's uh, video games, uh, physical choose-your-own-adventure book, the design of a role-playing game adventure, there's only so much content you can pack in before things get unwieldy, right? If you wanted to do like a true prepared sandbox in a role-playing game and have everybody in the bar that the players go into have a plot hook that leads to a a separate thrilling adventure out here in the magical fucking countryside, you would need to have a whole backstory, a whole, you need to have stuff prepped, you need to have monsters statted, you need to have a location for every single one of them. It couldn't be done because you'd have so little prepared for any one of them that of course the players are going to choose one person in your fantasy bar and talk to them. And at first you're going to be all excited like, ah, the comely lass in the corner, you say. As you introduce yourself, she tells you that her name is Gwyneth and she is forlorn. For her trusty pet hound, whose name I have also prepared, gave birth recently, but the puppies were abducted by a gremlin. Good thing. Great. Wonderful work. Good looking out. Giving that dog a name. You're off to adventure. But but there's going to be like one place to go. And that's it. It's all you have time for because you're doing everybody. This is especially true in a published product, right? Like a choose-your-own-adventure book or an adventure module because you've only got so many pages. It's a limited physical space, so you have to make structural decisions. We can do something that is shallow, but you have tons of choices, right? This book has 40 scenes in it. You can apprentice yourself to the master of the shop. You can seek magical mushrooms in the woods. You can remember that you really want fish and chips and stop giving examples, but it's just one scene and then it's done. You do one of them because there's no room for a path, right? Or you can opt, as this book does, to give 24 fairly well-developed scenes in sequence and just say, look, you're playing all of these. We're going to do scene one, scene two, scene three, all the way to scene 23. Then we're going to do an epilogue. 
where we all have a seat, take a breath, and just reflect on all of the choices we didn't make to lead us to this moment. It's not that one way is right, it's not that one way is wrong, and of course they're not mutually exclusive. It's a slider, right? You decide between depth and breadth in your adventure flowchart. But that's really not the whole story. What matters is choices. What matters is agency. While there are pros and cons to having like more paths versus fewer longer paths, what really matters to players is choices and consequences. And those don't all have to be forks. You can do all kinds of structural tricks. You can set stakes that determine whether the players will get to experience certain scenes or not, for good or for ill. You can have a late branching path. So it's like most of the time we're kind of on the rails and then at the end it splits off into two basic paths to two different endings. You can have lots of endings along the way, like in a choose-your-own-adventure. It's easy there because a big part of the play experience is dying and starting over, which is not something people typically like to do in role-playing games. Writing a dozen satisfying conclusions to the same story is not easy when you're not allowed to have the protagonist, like, suddenly drown in quicksand. That makes things a lot simpler, narratively speaking. But generally, role-players are not willing to accept you die in quicksand because you went through the red door as a true resolution to their epic tale. My point is, you know, structurally, we're just talking about nodes and little arrows. They can loop around. They can go all different places. They can double back. They can represent events or locations, and you can mix it all up. I've actually read some great work people have done on the structure of Choose Your Own Adventures, and if the fish and chips at this hotel did not come with Parmesan fries, I probably would take the extra time to talk about some of those things. But the gist of what I'm saying is this. Just because you've got limited space doesn't mean that all you can do in your adventure is a linear path. While it's inevitable that certain scenes are basically going to happen no matter what, that certain decisions the characters make will, in a meaningful structural sense, ultimately lead them to the same place regardless of whether they zig or zag, that does not mean that your adventure has to resolve to a straight line of things. And that's what this is. They make it look a little more complicated because they do this little flippery do here at the bottom where like it goes down and then it goes up and then down and then back up and then twist around. But those are just bent arrows. You're not fucking fooling me. That's a straight line. And what's so striking about just how linear the flowchart of this adventure is, is that there are very few branching paths. And in all 23 of these scenes, plus epilogue, there's only one instance of an optional branch that is more than one node long. This is hard to do in an audio medium, especially after I've made the mistake of talking about those Parmesan fries, but just to give you an example. Starting at node 10, the adventure runs as it does for most of its length. You go from scene 10 to scene 11, from scene 11 to scene 12, from scene 12 to scene 13. No, There are no choices, no decisions, no branches. At scene 13, though, you have a choice. Do you want to go to scene 14 or scene 15, right? There's a choice you make in the scene determines which one you go to. But both 14 and 15 lead to 16. So those are two branches, but both of them are only one scene long, and then you're right back to the same place, regardless of which way you took. There are only three decision points in this entire adventure, and only one of them has a branch longer than one scene. So in almost every instance, well, in almost every one of the three instances where the players actually make a goddamn decision, it's like, choose A or B. And then if you choose A, you go to C. If you choose B, you go to C. So it's like you see different scenery along the way. The very dumbest thing in this page, though, is that one branch that goes two whole nodes long. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around this, around the fucking genius of narrative construction that went into this, but in scene number three, you choose whether to go to scene number four, scene number five, or scene number six. If you go to scene six, then you proceed to scene seven with no choices. But if you go to scenes four or five, both of those lead to scene eight, then to scene seven which means that one scene, scene eight, stands out 
it is the only scene that you can go through the adventure without the option of entering. So I had to know, what is scene eight? I went and looked it up. And I didn't want to spoil anything. So I was already preemptively thinking, like, how am I going to talk about this? How am I going to make it general enough? But as it turns out, I needn't have worried. Because scene eight is a meeting with Nick Fury in his office, where it is explicitly stated, the purpose of the scene is for Nick Fury to drop in your lap any clues you have missed so far in the adventure. In other words, the only scene that is too deep and may never touch your path through this story is a failsafe scene to make sure, regardless of which path you take, that if you made a consequential decision early in the adventure, Nick Fury will take you aside and hand you everything you would have learned and realized during the scenes you missed, just to make sure that none of your choices have consequences. I really wanted it to be something special. I really wanted it to be like an optional encounter with some World War II era celebrity or some kind of like comical scene where you're undercover in a USO show and you've got to disguise Steve Rogers as Betty Grable so the Nazi mole won't realize that Captain America is on the case. Like something, something fun, a reward for making a valiant effort to at least like stick your arm out the window as this plot barrels along its preordained course. But no. This scene is a fish in Lakitu. This scene is, there's like an abortive attempt at a clue trail in this adventure very early on. And there's a fail-safe scene that if you try to continue doing things without getting all the clues you're supposed to have, then the principal gives you detention and makes you find all the clues before you're allowed to go back to superheroing. That is the dumbest thing on this page. Although an argument could be made for me getting into this kind of nitty-gritty topic when I am, by my count, already 13 minutes behind the pace I need to keep for this session to end in fish and chips and not bitter self-recrimination. Join me tomorrow as we turn to the contents. And, you know, something, something, I just got to get that fish. I'll see you tomorrow on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact the show however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Podbean, Gmail, Instagram, etc., etc. This episode's theme music is Robinson's Grand Entry March, performed by the United States Air Force Concert Band. Thanks for listening.